0: An older couple had been losing their memory. Their doctor advised them to start writing things down. One night, the wife asked her husband to go get her a bowl of ice cream with some chocolate syrup. She said, and make sure you write that down. I want you to remember. He responded, no need. I got it. She then asked him to add some whipped cream on top. But she insisted, you need to write it down. He told her, he said, no worries, honey, I'll remember, don't worry. Finally, she asked him for a cherry on top. She was adamant, you better write it down, he grunted. He said, ice cream, chocolate syrup, whipped cream, cherry on top, I got it, it's right here. Well, he goes into the kitchen, he's in the kitchen for a while, and all of a sudden he appears with a piping hot plate of scrambled eggs and bacon. She sees the plate, she shakes her head, and she says, I told you to write down the toast. (laughs) Well, in chapter 10, Paul is concerned about memory loss. Memory loss about the Corinthian Christians. And he recounts the history of the ancient Hebrews as an example to these Corinthians. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. You remember when the Hebrews exited from Egypt, God led them with a cloud by day and with a fire by night. And what a sight it was. God wanted their eyes to be fixed on his glory. And they all passed through the sea. I always get goosebumps whenever I watch the Ten Commandments and Moses Heston raises his rod again. And the waters of the Red Sea part before Israel's astonished eyes. Imagine having been there, an eyewitness to such a miracle. And they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Notice that word baptized. They were baptized into Moses. Actually, Israel's historical crossing of the Red Sea is analogous to what happens to Christians spiritually when we're baptized. When we're baptized into Christ. As the Hebrews Hebrews were baptized into Moses in a spiritual sense, we're baptized into all that there is in Christ. Think of the parallels. Our deliverer, Jesus, leads leads us out of Egypt, the Egypt of this world. He frees us from sin slavery. He does a miracle by parting the waters of forgiveness. We cross over into the new life we have in Christ. Israel also all ate the same spiritual food. Recall how God satisfied Israel's hunger. For 40 years, he supplied them with the wonder bread, the manna. It was supernatural nutrition from God. I love Psalm 78 verse 25. It calls the manna angel's food. It was the first angel food cake. And God has given all Christians this miracle bread to eat. Jesus is the bread of life. He is food for our souls. And then verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now twice during Israel's wilderness wanderings, God drew water from a rock. The first time, Moses was told to strike the rock. He did, and water gushed out. The second time, God told him to just speak to the rock. But Moses became angry. He was fed up with Israel's complaining, and so in frustration, he misrepresented God. For instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck it a second time. And for this act of defiance, God barred Moses from the promised land. Now when you read of Moses' mistake, you wonder, is God being excessive here? I mean, does this punishment really fit the crime barred from the promised land? You think that until you get to 1 Corinthians 10. For here, Paul tells us that rock was Christ. Apparently, quenching the thirst of a few million Hebrews was a peripheral issue. God's main objective was to paint a picture of the Messiah. For Jesus was struck once and for all on the cross. Now, all we have to do is speak to the rock, and God pours out spiritual refreshment into our hearts. But Moses, in his anger, struck the rock a second time and blew the analogy. That's why Moses was punished so severely. Verse 5, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The word most there is an understatement. Most was all but two, Caleb and Joshua. Millions of Hebrews died in the desert because of their unbelief. And understand, this is Paul's point. Israel's experiences teach us that a good beginning doesn't ensure a good ending. For like the Israelites of old, the Corinthians had also seen miracles. They had eaten the bread of life. They had drank spiritually from the rock, that is Christ. Yet that didn't mean that they wouldn't die in the spiritual wilderness if they grew proud and stopped trusting and following Jesus. Friends, it's not how we start that matters. It's how we finish. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And there he quotes Exodus chapter 32 verse 6. You remember while Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, Israel bowed to their idol, their golden calf. They couldn't trust in an invisible God for 40 days before they sought a substitute that they could eyeball. They wanted a God they could see. Verse 8 Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Read Numbers 22 through 25 for this sordid story. The Moabite king had hired an occultist, a Middle Eastern soothsayer, a man named Balaam, to come and curse the encroaching Israelites. But the true God commanded Balaam not to issue the curse. Balaam was bound by God's will. He was greedy, though. And so he offered a workaround. He told the Moabites that though God wouldn't let him curse Israel himself, all the king had to do was send seductive women into the camp and tempt the Israelites with illicit sex and lewd idols. The Hebrews would succumb to their own lusts, and their own God would judge them himself, which is exactly what happened. And Paul is now warning the Corinthians to likewise beware Beware of falling away from God through lust and unbelief. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. In Numbers 21, Israel complained about God's provision. They grumbled and they were literally snake bit. A plague of snakes came into the camp. He says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. There's a Jewish tradition that attributes God's harshest judgments to a particular angel called the destroyer. Apparently, he's like a divine battleship. Trust me, you don't want to meet the destroyer in a dark alley. But the surest way to rumble with the destroyer is to grumble about how God chooses to meet your needs. Murmuring, ingratitude is really just a lack of faith. If we really believe God is in control, we'll stop our belly aching and we'll be thankful. Now, I'm sure you've heard the expression, experience is the best teacher. But it doesn't always have to be your experience you're learning from. Why keep slamming your head against the wall when you can learn from other people's mistakes? And this is why Paul is giving us this history lesson. He says in verse 11... Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, what happened to Israel is an example to us. And if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. And thus, verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride has been the downfall of many a person. Reminds me of the brilliant matador, Jose Cabrero. He died in Madrid at the age of 21. After thrusting his sword into a bull, Cabrero spun around to glory and the cheers of the crowd. Oh, he loved the cheers of the crowd. But after thrusting the bull, Cabrero didn't realize that it had one more final lunge in it. And it rammed its horn through Jose's heart. Today, a statue memorializing the event sits by the bull ring, a warner, warning that pride is the enemy of us all. And so verse 13 tells us, No temptation, or that is trial, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Here are four truths to recall whenever you face a trial. First, you're not alone. Notice trials are common to man. In fact, trials are the price for being human. Everybody goes through trials. Second, God is faithful. It's no sin to be tempted, and God will be there with you to help you in your struggle. Third, the temptation is winnable. Now, you can't beat it on your own, but you don't have to because God is with you. He'll help you. And then fourth, there's always an escape. God has an exit, and it's up to us to just look for it. God will always make a way of escape. You see, God knows our breaking point. He's aware of what we can and can't handle. At times, God tempers the temptation. At other times, he increases our resistance. But he always provides us a means of escape. That's why Paul says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In chapter 8, we learned that some of the Corinthian believers felt the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. After all, meat is just meat. But you can carry your freedom too far. Steak is just steak. But when you eat it in a pagan temple, with pagan friends, in the midst of a pagan celebration, with a pagan priest performing pagan rituals, your freedom is now promoting that idolatry. In the same way, a glass of wine is just a glass of wine. But if you're at a bar, guzzling booze, partying in the temple of hedonism, your freedom has gone too far. You're now an accomplice to that idolatry. And some of the Corinthian believers had crossed this line. They were getting sucked back into the idolatry of their past. Paul illustrates next what happens spiritually at the altar of an idol by explaining to us what happens at the Lord's table. He says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Communion is a fitting name for what Jesus commanded us to do. For when we come to the Lord's table to eat the bread and to drink the cup, We commune with the Lord behind the table. Fellowship takes place between us and God's Spirit. See, communion is a point of contact where we can release our faith, where we can reach up by faith and touch the hem of Jesus' garment all over again. The Lord's Supper is a special occasion for us to interact with God's Spirit. And so in verse 18, Paul says the same occurred at the Old Testament altar. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Realize a biblical sacrifice was a spiritual transaction. You see, the worshiper approached the altar from the physical side. While God's spirit was present behind the altar in a spirit In the spiritual realm, in the Old Testament and at the Lord's table, the worshiper at the altar was met by the spirit behind the altar, which was the Holy Spirit. And thus a literal communion with God took place. This is also what occurred in the pagan temple, yet it wasn't the Holy Spirit behind the altar. It was an evil spirit. It was a demon. For he says in verse 19, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? No, an idol was nothing but a stick or a stone. There's nothing real or divine about an idol. That's why for a believer in the know, meat sacrificed to it is just meat. But in the ritual of sacrificing, sacrificing the meat, spiritual forces do come into play. For when an idolater brings his sacrifice to the altar of the idol, there is someone there to receive it. Not the idol, that's nothing. But there are demons behind the altar. And thus Paul tells us, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Idols are idols, and meat is just meat. But idolatry is demonic. So don't waltz into a pagan temple as if nothing spiritual is going on. Demons are a-dancing. Here's another example. Yoga involves varied body movements that can increase your flexibility. It's healthy exercise. But yoga was originally connected to Eastern religion. Thus, the philosophy behind it teaches pagan ideas and can be a gateway to demonic activity. Now, if it's only exercise to you, then stretches are stretches. But if you enroll in a yoga class taught by a Hindu shaman, beware. It's paganism. As we've stated, whether a thing is good or evil depends on its context. Meat is harmless until it's used in a ritual that engages a demon. And yoga stretches are benign until they become an attempt to get you in harmony with your divine self. That's demonic. You're not divine, by the way. (laughs) Verse 21. For you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The Corinthians knew idols and meat were nothing. But they took their knowledge too far. They attended weddings and dedications in the pagan temple. Hey, when the new building in town opened, they bowed when the priest dedicated it to his idol. See, they failed to grasp the spiritual factors at play. Though there was nothing to the idol... The idol worship was real, and it was promoted by demons. And thus, you can't follow Jesus and flirt with demons. God gets jealous over that. The Corinthians needed to wise up. Paul says in verse 23, For all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And here again is the Christian ethic. We are free from law as long as we live by love. And it's love that determines what's helpful and what edifies. Hey, if I love God, I won't fumble away my faith. And if I love others, I won't do something that causes them to stumble in their faith. Both are off limits. Love is the key to living the Christian life. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Well, Paul continues to deal with this issue of food. He says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And in other words, all things are from God. Thus give thanks to God and eat his brisket. It's his gift to you. I'm going to enjoy it tonight. That is, unless someone associates the barbecue with an idol, then don't use God's gift to promote idolatry. See, meat is just meat. But the Christian's chief concern is the conscience of other people. Alcohol is just alcohol. But you've got to be concerned about the conscience of that person who's watching you. Verse 29, conscience I say, not your own, but that of the other. But well, why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? If my liberty to eat is seen as a moral lapse... Are viewed by you as poor judgment, or worse, a betrayal of Christ, why would I even want to go there? My primary concern should be to protect my witness for Jesus and to guard your conscience, your good conscience in Christ. Verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul advises, give no offense. Just do nothing that's going to hurt your witness for Jesus. Do nothing that's going to confuse other people. Give no offense. Evaluate every activity, every use of time, every enjoyment of pleasure by whether it promotes the gospel and whether it builds up the church. This is how Paul lived, not just what was allowable, but what was helpful. He says, "In whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And thus Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul was like Jesus. He used his liberty to spread the gospel and to build up the church. And now he wants us to be like him to do all to God's glory. And not just individually, but publicly. For in the next four chapters, Paul is going to address some of the abuses that were occurring in the public assembly of the Corinthian church. Paul is going to set in order their public gatherings. And the first issue that Paul addresses are gender roles. How relevant is that? Verse 2. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Authority matters to God. And he has designated leadership roles in the church and in the home. All chiefs and no Indians is in order. It's chaos. God has a definite chain of command. And here Paul lists it. God the Father is head over Christ the Son. Christ is head over the man. And the man is head over the woman. And notice the only decline in equality in this chain is between Christ and man. For the Father is head over Christ... Though both are equal in status, in nature, in substance. And man is head over the woman, though again, both are equal in value. But equal does not mean same. For as the father and son differ in roles, so does the man and the woman. Now actually, I'm not sure it's accurate to say the wife and the husband are equal. Truth be told, most wives are superior to their husbands. A woman's submission to her husband has nothing to do with any inferiority on her part. It's the role that God has assigned to her. Now verse 4 takes this further. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now the men in Corinth went into their pagan temples, and they prayed to their idols with their heads covered. Usually they would take their toga and they would just wrap it over the top of their heads. But Christian men prayed with their heads uncovered. For there is nothing between me and God. I've been forgiven. I now have access to the Father. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So in Corinth, Christian men prayed with their heads uncovered, while believing women wore headscarves. Now at the time, Greek women wore their their hair long, and they usually wore it under a veil. This wasn't the heavy burqa worn by the Muslims. This veil was just a light shawl that she would drape over the crown of her head. And the headscarf was important because it was a symbol that the woman wearing it was under authority that she was living in submission to her husband or under her father's roof. The only women in Corinth who wore short hair or ventured out into public without a veil were prostitutes. You remember the woman who came to Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair? What appalled the Pharisee was when the woman removed her veil and let her hair down. That was a first century taboo. And evidently, this is what was happening in Corinth. The Christian sisters were enjoying their freedom in Christ to the point where they thought they could shed their veils. It was first century women's liberation. Now here's a sidebar. It's interesting that this female liberation began among the first Christians. For nothing has done more for women's rights than Christianity. In the Greco-Roman world... In the Muslim world, even in ancient Israel, women were considered a man's personal property. They were a notch above a slave. It was Christianity that ennobled women and elevated their status. Paul declared in Galatians 3 verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This was new and revolutionary. This was an incredible idea that shook the foundations of the ancient world. Now recall Paul's point over the last few chapters. As with meat sacrificed to idols and as with the privileges of an apostle, there are times when a Christian needs to curtail their freedom for the sake of the gospel. And this needed to be the attitude of the Christian women in Corinth. Yes, the Corinthian ladies were free to shed their veils, but what message would that send to their neighbors? God still has a chain of command in the church and in the home. He wants men to lovingly lead, and he wants women to let them, and willingly follow. Thus, for a female to throw off a symbol of submission, it would have been seen as her bucking God. In 21st century America, customs and symbols have changed. But biblical principles have not. Today, if a woman wears a veil or scarf, it has nothing to do with her submission to her husband. It's either a fashion statement, or perhaps she's having a bad hair day. She just threw a veil on. Ladies, you don't need to start a veil collection. But there are symbols of submission in our modern culture that a Christian lady should take seriously if she wants to convey to the world an attitude of submission. For example, taking her husband's last name makes a profound statement, as does wearing his wedding ring or exchanging traditional vows. A Christian lady is responsible for the message she sends to her culture. Verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Remember, prostitutes shave their heads. Here Paul is being sarcastic. He's saying if a woman ignores custom and foregoes the headscarf, she should just go all out and shave her own head. For both acts made the same statement to the community of ancient Corinth. He writes, But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. When God created the first man, he said of Adam, It is not good for man to be alone. And God's ultimate answer for his aloneness was to take from Adam's side and make for him a woman. After his wife Eve was created, literally a part of the man was now missing. And it's now no shock to most women to learn that their husband is not all there. The old boy needs some help. And for most men to be complete, what do they need? They now need a woman by their side. The woman was created from and for the man. As man is God's pride and joy, his glory, the woman is the glory of man. A husband takes pride in his wife. Thus, a woman will find her greatest fulfillment in helping the man she loves. Whereas the man finds his highest fulfillment in protecting and providing for his wife. And as if this passage wasn't tricky enough, check out verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The angels? What do the angels have to do with anything here? I mean, what do the angels have to do with gender roles? Well, we're not sure. But I do know in Scripture, angels seem to have a high regard for rank and order, do they not? Angels and demons are organized in principalities and in powers. You Remember when Satan stepped over the authority given to him? He was booted out of heaven. Apparently, angels are very interested in how God arranges authority and therefore place close attention to the role play Between male and female. What goes on in your home, friend, may be sending messages to the angels. Or you may be confusing them. But just because men are head over women, it doesn't mean that men should get haughty. And not realize their dependence on women. God made the sexes interdependent. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Both sexes need each other. Our roles should complement, not complete. I mean, I'm sorry, not compete or cancel out. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. The first woman came from the first man, but every man since has come from a woman. God made it. So women need men, and men need women. We're interdependent, different in roles, but equal in value. Now Paul stays on this subject of submission in in authority in verse 13. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach teach you that if a man has long hair it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now wow. Here in chapter 11 we're just going from one hairy issue to another. (laughs) Apparently prior to headscarves or any other culturally devised symbols, God ingrained into our very nature certain signs of submission. For example, the length of a person's hair. And it is amazing to me how the length of a man or a woman's hair has and can reveal the state of that person's heart. Now, though there are exceptions to this, generally speaking, it's true in most cultures, ancient or modern, women grow and wear their hair longer than men. Do you remember in the 1960s when young men bucked the establishment? What was the symbol of their rebellion? It was long hair. And whenever women have rebelled against traditional roles, what's one way that they've expressed their defiance? Short hair. You see, the length of a person's hair can reveal the leaning of that person's heart. Now, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but I realize there are a lot of men who grow their hair long just because they like it long. I, I go with that. And there are women who cut their hair short just because it's easier or cooler, especially in August. It's also true Long and short are relative terms. I mean, what's long? (laughs) If you're bald, everybody's got long hair. I've always considered long hair as hair longer than my wife's. Whatever Kathy's link happened to be at the time was long. And there's another biblical principle that certainly stands out here. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance... But the Lord looks at the heart. Realize when God looks at us, the first thing he sees is our heart, not our hair. But can the length of a person's hair reflect the attitude of their heart? Paul says yes. Nature dictates that women have longer hair than men. So when either gender defies nature, it can be a sign of rebellion. Now, I love how Paul finishes up his thoughts on gender, verse 16. But if anyone seems to be contentious or wants to argue about this, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul isn't going to argue with you over gender issues, for there is nothing for us to argue about. God created us, and he did so male and female, and he assigned to us certain roles. Male and female are God's idea, not mine and not yours. God is the one who said for men to lead and for women to let them and to follow them. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't my opinion. This is God's word. And you either believe it or not. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now again, Paul is dealing with problems in the public assembly of the Corinthian church. In essence here he's saying, It'd be better if you guys just closed your doors. For your Sunday meeting is doing more harm than good. And he tells them why. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, That those who are approved may be recognized among you. This is interesting. Generally speaking, divisions are not good. But Paul says they are necessary. Follow me. If someone is in error, someone else has to say so. There has to be a division. Be suspicious of people who insist on perfect unity in the church and who squash all dissent. See, total agreement means somebody isn't thinking, or somebody's ideas are getting suppressed. God created His church to be self-correcting. The movements of the Holy Spirit, the living power of the Word of God, the fresh conscience of every new believer are the tools that God uses to keep the church on track and to make course corrections through the ages when necessary. That's why there has to be disagreements for corrections to occur. Factions among you are not always bad. And then he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Horribly, believers in Corinth were getting drunk at the communion table. Now understand, the early Christians always gathered on Sundays for a church-wide potluck. They called it the agape feast, or the love feast. It was a meal that was followed by communion. But the Corinthians' behavior contradicted its name. There was nothing loving about these gatherings. They fought for first dibs on the food. I mean, they elbowed each other in line. They drank too much wine. There was no love in their love feast. Their practice of the Lord's Supper had left out the Lord. And so Paul writes to them, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. This is an apostolic chewing out. That's what this is. He says, you can pig out at home. Don't bring such behavior into church and make a mockery of our worship and our fellowship. See, the early church was highly populated by the poor and slaves. And for many of its members, the love feast was the only decent meal they got all week. And these Corinthians had turned it into a sham. Verse 23 is what every pastor should be able to say to his church after he stands to preach. For I receive from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you. And Paul recounts Jesus' words at his last supper. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of course, to the original disciples, all Jewish, this was their annual Passover Seder. But to the Christians to come, this became a new celebration. The bread now symbolizes Jesus' broken body. The cup, his spilled blood. Jesus gave a 1,500-year-old tradition entirely new meaning. And we enjoy it to this day. And through the centuries, different views have been advanced to explain the significance of communion. Roman Catholics consider what happens at the communion table, at the Lord's table, nothing less than magical. They believe that the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. Whereas Baptists view it as simply a memorial, that it's just a reminder of the historical events that happened on Calvary. And yet I believe chapter 10 teaches us that it's not magical and it's more than a memorial. Communion is mystical. It's an open door for us to reach beyond the table and experience the spirit of Jesus in real time and in a real way. Recall earlier Paul said that by going to the altar of the idol you connect with the spirit behind that idol. Well, likewise, to eat and to drink at the Lord's table, you create an opportunity for the Spirit of Christ to work in your spirit. You can expect a very real communion with Jesus. I love taking communion. I love going to the Lord's table because I expect Jesus to be there and to commune and engage with me. Verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Notice he doesn't say how often, just as often. That leaves the frequency of communion up to each church and each individual believer. But as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We showcase his sacrifice when we take communion. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, or the old King James Version said, unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And this was the verse that scared us as kids. This is the verse that strikes horror in many a Christian. The way my former church interpreted verse 27. It robbed me of my joy of communion. It scared me. The old King James which we read from used the word worthily. And folks took it to mean that you had to be a worthy Christian, a perfect Christian. At least you had to undergo a rigorous self-examination and confess all your sin before you dare eat that bread, or you'll be judged by God. Ooh, wow. That was rough. You never knew when you take that bread. Is this my last thing I'm going to (laughs) eat? Paul writes... For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. See, we were fearful, fearful of God's judgment, but in reality, we should have been fearful of bad grammar. Because that was our real problem. We mistook an adverb for an adjective. The word unworthily is an adverb describing the act of eating. Not an adjective relating to the eater. That's why the New King James Version here offers a better translation. It says, eating in an unworthy manner. No one can make themselves worthy of communion. No one can be good enough for Jesus. The point of the gospel is that we're all unworthy. And we can't do it ourselves. If we could be worthy, Jesus would have never had to die for us. Here Paul is reiterating what he's already said. Don't pig out and get drunk. The Corinthians should approach the Lord's table with a humble and a grateful heart in a worthy manner. No one is worthy, but we can all come to the table in a worthy manner. Notice the last line of verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, or literally are dead. Again, I always interpreted that as part of the scare tactic. If you didn't clean yourself up before taking communion, God might make you sick or even strike you dead. It literally scared me to take communion. But notice the phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, By his stripes we are healed. Jesus paid for our healing in his body. Thus, if you just blow through communion and you don't recognize what it means, then you're going to miss out on a healing. The healing that Jesus wants to do in your life and in your body. That's why church members were weak and sick. Paul wraps up his thoughts in verse 31 For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God is a father who loves his kids enough to correct them. You should be glad. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Be a little patient this afternoon at the barbecue. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. He has more to say, but right now, not enough time to say it all, which is my situation. And there we have 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. Father, we love you so much.